When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Thursday, December 7th. On today's show, we continue State of the Union Week, a week that allows me to take a step back and assess some of the ongoing trends we see emerge week in, week out, throughout. Out the pro tennis world. On today's show, I want to get into a topic near and dear to my heart. It's a topic we discussed in our very first podcast episode here at Cracked Rackets, a podcast discussion that we will continue to have over the many future years we do this show as well. And that, of course, is a discussion surrounding all things regarding the original next-gen ATP crew, not the current crop of players 21 and under. No, the crop of players that qualified for that inaugural 2017 Next Gen Finals event. The crop of players that, dare I say, as we approach 2024, should either be entering in the midst of or nearing the tail end of the primes of their careers. Players born 1996 through 1999. Players like Daniil Medvedev, like Sasha Zverev, Stefano Tsitsipas, Kasparud, Alex Dimanau, and others who, again, will more likely than not help help, excuse me, shape, that's the word I was looking for, leave that struggle in, help shape the next half decade uh, on the ATP Tour. Now, certainly there has been an injection of next-gen ATP 2.0 talent at the top of the game in Alcaraz, in Sinner, in Runa, and it's almost impossible to discuss the original next-gen crew without discussing the emergence of those other young guys as well. And, you know, again, That's why I wanted to make this a specific State of the Union topic. Coming off of 2023, how do we feel about that original next-gen crew? Do any of those guys, Medvedev, Zverev, Tsitsipas, or others, do any of them have legitimate windows remaining to capture either a first or, in the case of Medvedev, another major singles title in their career? It's a fascinating discussion and one I am thrilled to be joined by by a first-time guest uh, for joined by by a first-time guest. Leave all that stuttering in as well as we are joined by the great tennis.com and Tennis Channel Senior Editorial Manager Ed McGrogan to break down this next-gen ATP cohort. I have had the pleasure of working with Ed when working with Tennis Channel's T2 broadcast. That, of course, a part of their second serve show. And I really enjoyed my conversations with Ed. How could I not, given all he's written over the years for tennis.com, one of the great thinkers, great writers we have in our sport That's why it was a pleasure to be joined by him for this conversation, a conversation I, of course, promised would go no longer than 40 minutes that, of course, exceeded an hour. That speaks to, again, the depth we were able to get into in breaking down this group. We got into the stats. We got into individual report cards. It's a fantastic conversation that I am certain all of you listeners are going to enjoy, of course, before we get to it. A shout out, as always, to all of you who tune in day in, day out. We know December is a dead month in terms of calendar 
calendar action on court. We try to make it interesting for uh, interesting for you listeners off the court for now by, again, offering the sort of content we have this week. We've had David Kane, Gil Gross, Ben Rothenberg, now Ed McGrogan, really fun guest joining us tomorrow as well. So, again, appreciate the support we have gotten from all of you. Always appreciate those of you who go and leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, who leave us a uh, five-star rating, excuse me, as well as a little review with your thoughts on the show. It never goes unappreciated. So, sincerely, a thank you to all of you for taking the time to listen to our rac- our content here at Cracked Rackets. A thank you as well to the support we get on this show from our dear friends at Tennis Point. Remember, it's tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15 for all of the latest and greatest products in the tennis world. With that said, let's get to it. Talking all things next-gen ATP with the one and only Ed McGrogan. Joining us on the podcast for the first time today is a man you all know best as a senior editorial manager for all things tennis.com and tennis channel. Of course, I know him as a guest I have long been in pursuit of having on this show. That is why I am delighted to finally welcome onto the podcast our dear friend Ed McGrogan. Ed, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Thank you, buddy. That is very flattering. Some some journalists try to get sources. They you know they'll land the interviews for they they've been at for years. Um, you have different goals, and I'm glad to make <laughs> uh, make yours come true here. So, all is good. I mean, last time we talked, uh, to my knowledge, on a format like this, it was during WTA Finals, uh, 2022. So uh, maybe you want to go ATP today. Yeah, I like to change things up with my guests. And yeah, look, some say aspire high, shoot for the big goals. I say shoot for things you think you can accomplish. And that's why, again, week after week, you saw the DMs continue to filter Mm -hmm. in. And, you know, again, that's why I was willing to suffer through all of your Buffalo Bills talk throughout all of these courses. Because, again, I mean, you do got to follow if you got if you want the DMs open, you do have to endure. I mean, yeah, it's my feed is definitely uh, for those of you followers know it definitely kind of runs the gamut of of things tennis and otherwise. Bill's obviously part of that, so um, if you've stuck around with me this long, um, I think you'll enjoy this what we got cooking up for you. I worked on a Josh Allen Alex Zverev comparison for more than five, less than fifteen minutes before I decided to scrap it because it just didn't work the way I wanted. But I feel as though. As a longtime Detroit Lions fans, we have been pitted mm-hmm. against each other as rivals in suffering. And I would just like to re- let the record show as this is we are nine and three for the first time since 1962. For context for my listeners, my dad was born in 1962. So it's the first time in his lifetime as well. I think we win that argument just to start off with an early argument with you. Um, yeah, I mean, they're not, yeah, definitely not true rivals, but, um, certainly I'm, I'm happy for you guys. Um, (laughs) I did, I did hate to see though, that on the year that, you know, the kind of the breakthrough year, you know, what happened on Thanksgiving, that's, that's a tough one to swallow, but I, uh, I'm hoping, um, hoping it turns out better than when I think the bills had that in 2019 and they got to the playoffs and then kind of face planted at the end of it. So you have that bar to clear still. Um, if you can surpass that, then I do think you win this mini argument at the top. 
the best part of all of that is on social media, people were able to blame the moon. That when the moon is in a certain position, the lions are like 0 oh, 7 in the mm-hmm. last seven Thanksgivings when the moon is in that position. And I'm down with that. That works as an explanation for me. I'm going to celebrate the 9 and 3 otherwise, just like I'm going to celebrate having you on the show. And as our listeners know, this is a continuation of a week I'm calling State of the Union Week, where we take a step back, take a 10,000 foot view, and look at some of the bigger topics we have right now unfolding in the pro tennis world. And for me, one of those topics that has been near and dear to my heart since we started this podcast six years ago is the progress of the next gen. Now, I'll just be frank. I consider the next gen players born 1996 to 1999, that original crew of players that would have qualified for that original next gen finals held in 2017, a field which, by the way, has aged incredibly well. The lowest ranked player Mm -hmm. in that field at the time was a lowly guy in the 60s by the name of Daniil Medvedev. I think he's done pretty well uh, in the years since that event. But Look, that group, much like myself, we're entering our mid to late 20s. Like This is when you got to start to figure some, self, uh, some things out, particularly in a pro tennis career where this would be considered the prime of many of these players' careers. For a guy like Medvedev, who's going to turn 28 in 2024, you feel like this is the window. If he's going to add to his slam title count, it's probably going to have to be in the next few seasons. And look, I do want to run you through some stats uh, mm-hmm. in terms of sure. making the case for my argument, but let me open the floor to you more broadly. That original next-gen campaign, that again, 2017, we're trying to find that next generation of stars because eventually Nadal, Federer, Djokovic, we think, are going to age out. Now, Djokovic has proven some of that wrong, but that's a discussion for a different time do you think that next gen campaign has worked? Like, have the stars, these guys, emerged to a place in the game in the way this uh, event was created or intended to do? I mean, I think it's a success story overall. So, I think any of these events where you are clearly, uh, you know, for somewhat arbitrary reasons, but also just because you are not able to. Uh, have the everybody out there uh you're you're casting a net uh, on a variety of players here and you're hoping like a lottery or like a first round draft pick that like you know a couple of them might hit maybe it's your draft all rounds one through seven and i i think what we've seen is um this has it's it's looked i think well on on the atp and the players are obviously the biggest reason for that medvedev clearly is uh, one of the best graduates to this point. Um, I mean, if, if it's hard for me being, you know, being a watcher of his for years, of course, I was out courtside for him versus Carlos at the Open. Um, when you when you see that, when you see the totality of what he's done, not only this year, years past, this year he had uh, big waves. I would call it of enormous success uh early in the year the two tournaments um sorry three tournaments and almost won a fourth in miami and then goes you know kind of turns it back in time for the u.s open too so um for me it's hard to not picture you know another slam on on his ledger at some point i totally appreciate the question though of you know we we've probably said that for a couple of years now you do at a certain point have to have to see it through. But I mean, I think it's impossible to come into 24 
Um, you know, not not bullish on Medvedev in spite of obviously another couple sets of real real hard late late losses at the biggest showings. Yeah, the reason I wanted to start with Medvedev and we'll get into his 2023 specifically here in a second is because I think when you try and assess where this next gen ATP original generation stands right now, it gets kind of tough when you get beyond Medvedev, particularly coming off of a year that, you know, statistically, there were some improvements for this group more broadly than 2022. But again, top line, if you're looking for slam titles, there were none of those this season. Yeah, there was some master success, but coming out of the year, there's a pretty clear cut top four and then everyone else. And only one guy you would classify as a next-gen ATP is in that group. You have Djokovic, obviously, Alcaraz winning Wimbledon in five sets over Djokovic, the fashion he did, the consistency. He was flirting with a 90% win percentage. He's a tier one guy, obviously. I think you have to throw Sinner on that, in that tier mm-hmm. one crew, particularly given how strong his post-US Open run was to beat Djokovic twice in a span of 10 days. You just don't see that very often mm-hmm. in tennis history. And then, again, the last guy you would make the case for is probably Daniil Medvedev, who, for what it's worth, was one of three next-gen slam finalists this year. You know, Kasparud, a quiet French Open final because he didn't really do much else the rest of the season. Tsitsipas, again, same thing, starts the year in an Australia final, doesn't do much outside of that. Medvedev was the constant, who was, to your point, mm-hmm. exceptional. A post, you know, struggles in January, undefeated February, really good in the sunshine swing as well. Beats Alcaraz in one of the highest level matches we saw this season at the U.S. Open semis to make the final there. You know, he had, I would say, at the lowest possible case, an A minus season. Maybe you go a little bit higher than that, flirting in that range. Outside of that, though, one of my favorite questions to end the season was, who's the fifth best player in the world? Because none of the other next-gen guys were good enough, I would say, from start to finish on the year to really cement their case. Like, the most consistent was an Andre Rublev, who finishes, I think, fifth overall in the year in the rankings, wins Monte Carlo, his first 1,000-level title. Three slam quarterfinals. That's a really good year for Andre Rublev. He's 5-9 and nine against the top 10. Goes 0-3 in one of the more depressing tour finals appearances for a guy who, yes, has made it to that event four times, but just seems to have plateaued in a really good spot, like five to eight in the rankings. But that feels like the range for Rublev moving forward. And I still don't think people would confidently put him in that five spot. Same thing for Tsitsipas, the lack of consistency, the fact that him more than anyone else is probably the most vulnerable to just everyone knows the game plan attack through the backhand and you know some days he's going to serve his forehand out of way of it but you just know the script how to play him and all these guys are good enough to do that at an elite level and then Kasparut who just has a really confusing 2023 season not a lot of consistency you know he was two in the world last year he's outside the top 10 this season those three And then the guy I would put, Sasha Zverev, coming off of injury again, gets back in the top 10. I thought played a really high level, particularly those last three months, goes 2-1 at the tour finals. And yet, like, how many times do we need to see him lose in the later stages of a slam to have that message be sent across the bowel? I know that's quite the monologue at you to start. Welcome to the show, Ed. Um, But Mm -hmm. that's where it sort of clouds how you grade this next-gen ATP season, right? Because the majority of the group, and we can talk about 
how many guys you'd still put at this level. We will, I should say. But the majority of this group feels like it's already been surpassed by Alcaraz, surpassed by Sinner, maybe even surpassed by Runa as well. And even it, through successes we saw on the calendar this year, I feel like it's really hard to give this group an A for the season, giving that fact at the 10,000 foot level. Yeah, there is a lot to work out there. Um, let's start with, I guess what you just ended on is the overall grade. So I think, I think when you kind of, you know, to me, we, we just did a thing on, on the year end, um, our countdown of the assessing the top five players. You can, you can go off the ranking. You can, you can ignore the rankings. Number five was the most difficult one to place for the reasons you just said, I ended up going with Rublev off the chalk because I, to me, to me, part of it is I watch, I watch the man play. I watch him just detonate tennis balls. And I almost wonder like, how, how is this not, how is this not equaling another level up at a certain point? And you, you know, there, there's obviously differences when you get to the absolute crucibles of, of tournament play, et cetera. Um, I think the, I think the answer of who probably should be five, but um, it just hasn't worked out that way. I feel like the elephant in the room is Vera with this. Like I, I just, I still do feel like, um, and, I, and I could be looking at this from just remembering his 22 semi against Rafa at RG. I mean, you saw a player that you felt at that time was pretty much on the level, a little below, of course, but in the level where you're putting Medvedev center right now, like someone who is clearly ascended to that uh, tier B, you know, if we're going to call Novak Carlos at the time, Rafa tier one, clearly tier two. Um, Zverev, you know, I, I didn't vote him five for that reason. Just the consistency was not there this year. I thought it was better for Rublev. Um, so I think, I think the grade overall of like where this next gen is right now, no, I don't think you can give it an A. Um, there's too much of a strata where you clearly see that delineation under Medvedev center, um, where it just, you can, there's impressive sort of peaks, I, I would say. Uh, but obviously just a little bit of wanting more overall. Um, even Rune, I mean, Rune, who, you know, had, I think is the, a great example of that like, yes, he would, he would assume kind of can slide into that position going forward. But this was also a year of, I think, opportunity for him to kind of make the same sort of impact that maybe even a Carlos did. Uh, it's, it's, it's that same age range. It's that same, it's, it's, it was there, uh, and clearly he was a very difficult opponent at times. You know, I think just better known to kind of everybody, but still, uh, you know, do you want to say like a B? I think I think I feel like it's one of those average to maybe above average, but at at the best, that's what I would give it. The whole Garuna part of the equation is fascinating because there was a time where he was the fifth best player in the world. Through the first six months of the season, mm -hmm. Wimbledon quarterfinals, he would have been the number five guy pretty clearly. How consistent he was at all the big clay events throughout the course of that portion of the season. Hold seed for the most part in Australia in the sunshine swing. And then, yeah, obviously things fall off after Wimbledon pretty quickly. But to your point, 
and I'm going to rearrange the outline and we'll talk next-gen tiers in a second. Like, If you were tiering this group of 96 to 99ers and you threw Holgaruna in the mix, he's pretty quickly ascending to tier one amongst this group of guys and at the top of that discussion. And that speaks to, again, maybe a failure of these guys to consolidate their top 10 positions the way Alcaraz Runa, Sinner have so quickly seemingly done at the top of the ATP Tour. And just to finish this grade quickly before we get to the tiers on their season, I do want to offer you some stats, Ed. And by the way, I mm-hmm. can tell right away, we're going to have fun in that Zverev conversation. I think that's going to be the debate takeaway of today because I kind of agree with you and I think it's a fun conversation to have. But from a rankings perspective, I'm not going to go all the way to the top 100. These guys are 27 to 24 to 27 now. They should be top 100 players if that's where they're going to reach in their career. Right now, you have 23 top 50 guys amongst the group. That's one more than they had at the end of last season. The eight new additions to the group, Umber, who is... He's been here before, but again, one of the bounce back seasons of 2023. Shout out to Ugo Umber. Talon Griegspoor, a couple of titles for him this season. Best year of his career unequivocally. He went the long route through the challenger way, but watch him strike a tennis ball. He's a top 50 player. You have French Open quarterfinalist Tomas Martin Echeverry, Wimbledon quarterfinalist Chris Eubanks, Roman Safulin, who, by the way, Safulin was a top junior in his age group, just dealt with a lot of injuries from like 18 to 21 and has clearly found his footing. You've got Alexi Popperin, Sebastian Ofner, Max Purcell as well. So those are the eight new additions. Here's the encouraging part of the rankings, Ed. The seven players exiting the top 50 from last year, it feels like they could all come back. Berrettini's gone. He's clearly one of the 20 best players in the world when healthy. The key word there is when healthy. Riley Opelka is gone. That's another guy. Was one of the 10 best players in the world, maybe, first two months of last year before he got injured. He hopefully will be back healthy in 2024. Denis Shapovalov is a conversation on himself, but he's a top 25 guy. Kesmenovic, Rusevori, Kresi, Mulchen, the other guys to fall out. You've got 14 top 25 players uh, right now. That's two more than last season. The four new additions are Umber, Sarundalo, Griegspor, and Tommy Paul. Six top 10 players, same number we had last year. Zverev's in, Kasper Rud's out. It's a pretty consistent group at the top, Ed. And again, I think they won 29 titles collectively this year. It's up one from the 28 they got last year. I mentioned the slam results earlier. There were at least four next-gen quarterfinalists at every slam this year. It's at least half the field. Now, again, it should be. These are guys in their prime, but to their credit, they performed. You had finalists at three of the four events. No champions. That context added B plus maybe for these guys because they are in the mix. They just can't mm-hmm. get over that finish line. Yeah, it's uh, it kind of reminds me of you. You think back a couple of years, the and Buffalo would, Bills. Well, um, we're not gonna. This is, is the, the next podcast. gen. Is the next gen <laughs> Josh Allen? That's the comparison. Oh, uh, look. I, <laughs> Look, buddy, we we we're selling Josh <laughs> a little bit short there. Um, <laughs> That's true. I, I, I love the next gen, but I, I we really love Josh on this podcast. Um, you look you look back at I almost think you 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 look at what a typical Masters tournament draw ends up at the end of any you know most of the given events this year, and you would say um, you know obviously there's some exceptions here, but 
You say if you saw that draw and how it played out two years ago, what would you have said? You would have been blown away by some of those results, some of those players that were in there. Um, And now that has become more common, obviously. So I think just on that fact alone, where we're seeing kind of this this typical spread on a week to week basis. um, And a lot of and I I also think a lot of the players we are going to talk about um, certainly well versed on 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 all surfaces, too. We are seeing again that playing into the, you know, the well-worn discussion point of um, we're, we're seeing quote unquote clay players do well on hard. We're, we're, we're getting more of a consistent spread across uh, not only surfaces, but from January to October. So when you combine all that, you're seeing where the ranking points are, are being made up here, but you're also just getting, you're just seeing these players more comfortable in these positions. So, and I think the biggest thing that we'll get into is we talk about like where, where these players are going to make these leaps. Are they going to be in this tier, quote unquote? The other question is who's coming out of these tiers? Like who is, who is making way for them? And I think that's almost as just as hard a discussion. Yeah, it's a fascinating discussion as well because, again, guys like Alcaraz, Sin, or Runa have inserted themselves in it so early at the top of the men's game. And there are only eight top eight players at the end of every year. There's some math for you folks. The only eight guys are going to make the tour finals. And, again, that's why if you're an Alex Diemenauer, a Tommy Paul, to be so close this year and miss out had to be gut-wrenching because you just wonder how open Will that window be if three of the spots or five of the spots, because Virav Medvedev get there pretty consistently as well with Sinner, Alcarez, Runa, if they're just taken up right away, you're, again, it's 12 for three, maybe at the mm-hmm. onset of every season, and it's just things get crowded at the top of the game, and that's excluding a Novak Djokovic who doesn't look like he's going anywhere anytime soon. Let's get into the tiers of these next-gen guys as we offer individual report cards, talk about where they're where they are moving forward. Start with a category I call the big guns, the guys who, even amongst this next-gen crew and all the uncertainty we've discussed, have separated themselves from the rest of the pack. Let's start with Daniil Medvedev. Really good year uh, for Medvedev, a year that started off again with him dropping outside the top 10 for the first time in a really long time uh, after a very disappointing month of January. He gets knocked out early by Sebastian Corda at the Australian Open. Flash forward 11 months, he wins more matches in 2023 than any season of his career. 67 wins, which, by the way, was the most tour victories of any player on the season. I mean, just what I think it was nine finals overall for Medvedev this year. He won five different titles, you know, makes a U.S. Open final, which ultimately he falls short in against Novak Djokovic, but still in the mix there. Final four at the tour finals as well. That he is clearly the guy that if you're having a tier one discussion of the next gen crew, it starts with him. I mean, he's been world number one. He's the only guy of this group to have won a slam. With that context, how do you assess the season, Ed? The season, you know, as I said earlier on him, I think the season is a, uh, I think it's a, it's a context thing. Look, I, I, I think part of this, you can't talk about Medvedev without talking about Novak and Carlos. And we, you know, we got uh, what I think is going to be looked back on as something of the, really the the apex of, of Novak and, and Alcaraz. And I think it's just hard to, you know, I'm talking about both of them at the same time. 
I think a lot of people, a lot of commentators have pointed out that this felt in the moment, even like you'd better sort of savor this and appreciate kind of where it is because um, I, I put it and I, I put it in writing about a little, a couple weeks ago that I thought the gap between those two and everybody else felt a lot like the gap of the, of the mid two thousands, Roger Rafa and to everybody else. And that might be a slight on Sinner, on Medvedev, on guys like that, because, you know, we didn't have the ascendancy of Novak back in 2005, 2006. But I think when you consider that where Medvedev is and still, you know, rattling off, like you said, 66 wins, um, you know, five, nine finals, I think, in total. Um, and I, the reason I, I just am still, uh, I'm still going to, you know, I, if you want to give me a grade, I, I think you probably throw probably throw an A minus on on Medvedev for this past year. Um, the guy just has he just has the comportment and the headspace to handle kind of whatever the environment throws at him. I think he just relishes it. Um, I thought coming, you know, I think it was four years. You just mentioned about the last time he was out of the top ten. I think it I think it dated back to 2019. So. You know, to to just I think kind of get back on the bike really, and after taking some pretty you know tough losses that would you know any one of which could almost really shift the way you view him career wise, pretty uh, in in a pretty heavy way. Um, I, I think just Medvedev's got and the the way he the way his game is and the way obviously it really doesn't you know there, there's not many. Uh, blueprints that kind of go to his mold. I think it's a game that can hold up for years to come too. Like I'm not, I'm not worried about him in a way that I might be of players who are just, you know, he exerts physically, obviously that's part of it, but he's doing so in a somewhat controlled manner, Mm -hmm. which is also ironic considering he's kind of the most out there player there is. So I just think it's, it's something of a unique case with him where, um, you know, another another Aussie Open final is not going to surprise me if that happens in in a two months time. I just think we're seeing we may be seeing sort of peak Medvedev at the same time we're seeing still peaks of of the players just above him. Yeah, he's a guy who will catch you off guard, who's a backboard, who will then step up, slap a forehand when you don't expect it. And I do think his forehand added pace this year. He's got the perfect tennis body, 6'6", lanky, fluid, can also just can in a 130 serve by you to get himself out of a jam. And yeah, he struggled with some double faults at times this year, but even if you know how to play him, to execute the serve and volley and the aggression to the degree of consistency and excellence that you have to to actually put him away— there's like three guys that can do it consistently enough. It's Djokovic, it's Alcaraz— and the the scary part for Medvedev is now it's Yannick Sinner. And that's the biggest issue for him moving forward and why you probably give him an A- minus for the year as a guy he was 6-0 and against. He lost two the last three times he played him down the home stretch of the season. A guy who is on the ascent at 22, who certainly has the weapons and the decisiveness to make Medvedev un, uh, uncomfortable. The question is, can he match his uh, physicality in a best of five, not best of three format? That's the thing going for Medvedev. Again, that underlying physicality. Uh, a plan, his plan A may not be as clear as some of the other big guns, but B, C, D, E, he can do everything to make you uncomfortable. 
and he's clearly one of the four best hardcore players in the world always. And to be that good on a surface that takes up so much of the calendar, he's just not leaving the top eight anytime soon. He's the unequivocal tier one where if you put a ballot to 30 people like me and you, Ed, who followed the game in the capacity that we do, he would unequivocally be voted tier one amongst all of us. The question is, again, has the slam window closed? If I were to ask you, and this is where we'll end the Medvedev conversation, Ed McGrogan, does Daniil Medvedev win another slam in his career? What's your answer? I would take the over of yes. Yep. I think I agree. If the over is plus or minus a half, I would Mm -hmm. take the over. I think he gets another one. It may only be one, but eventually Djokovic goes away, and you're right. Like him winning an Australian, just coming out of the gates, extraordinarily consistent, serving well and fit. It feels in the cards, and that's why you gives him, he gives himself too many opportunities, I think, not to. And if we're looking at just sort of a value, like if, you, if that's the bet out there, uh, it, it's it's too it's I think you are just you're projecting way too much to say at age um, at his age, we're not going to see just one breakthrough at some point. Um you know, does he need to get it done before a fifth set? Like that's another conversation. But I, but I think enough opportunities he he puts himself in those spots. Two hard court slams a year. That's obviously also part of it. So let, let's say let's say yes on that. That good job, Daniel. Yeah. Again, a minus from both Ed and I in terms of overall on the season. Now, again, I think if you pulled thirty people like us the majority would have tier one ending there. And I define tier one as you will win a slam title during the course of your career. I do not end my tier one there as I look at this next-gen crew heading into 2024. I, like you alluded to earlier in this show, still have to place Alex Virev in tier number one because I have seen, and I say this on many a podcast, but I will continue to say it, there are five minutes in every Alex Virov match where you will say that is the best tennis player I have ever seen, where he will just do something at his size. And, you know, people make made much fuss. I think he hit an on-the-run, down-the-line backhand winner against Alcaraz as a passing shot, and it was one of those shots of the day or whatever. He hits three of those a match. Like, that is what he can do that... I don't even think Medvedev has that sort of pace on the run. Medvedev does it a little bit differently. But if you're making the backhand hierarchy, I always say Djokovic one, Zverev two, Korda three, Nishesh Basavaredi four. And it's important you put Nishesh on that list, Ed. Trust me. Um, <laughs> I just, your word for him. Yeah. The fact that he now makes a 70% first serve percentage look so routine. And you look for Zverev, by the way, you know, he made 70.6% of his first serves for the season this year. A guy who, again, notorious for his double fault problems. How did he solve his way out of it? I'm just going to perfect my first serve. And it's not as though he's taken pace off that first serve. He's still top 10 in ace percentage. He's still, you know, again, one of the top five server, uh, top 10 servers in first serve win percentage as well. It's just like how, and he'll still float second serves. Like, it's just the amazing thing is he's so badly doesn't want to hit a second serve that he's gotten really good at hitting first serves. And you add that. I like, no, I, yeah. I like that. And I mean, is the comp Sabalenka? Like, is that like really kind of where you go with this? Yes and no. It No, because Sabalenka always had the killer in her. Like where Sabalenka got into trouble is she would just, you know, again, the 50 unforced error count. That's never going to happen for Zverev. And that's what's so fascinating is how his weakness manifests itself is that 
in his heart of hearts, yes, he's six foot six, but he is most comfortable grinding opponents down with this combination of consistency and physicality that, again, the best players in the world will beat because in the biggest moments, Carlos Alcaraz wants to go down swinging. Yannick Sinner, albeit down at the U.S. Open, wants to go down swinging. And like Zverev does not want to go down swinging. Zverev wants to go up with you missing, playing not to lose, not to win. Obviously, that's what I'm saying. The knock on Zverev is very evident. He's been around forever. He is a slam title away from a Hall of Fame statistical career because he's done everything else. Olympic gold medalist, tour final champion, Masters 1000 champion, etc. The only thing he doesn't have is a slam title. He, he got back to a top 10 level after shattering his ankle in about 12 months. That's remarkable, even for a guy who's 26. Really, really impressive stuff given the context of that injury. I think you have to give him an A- minus for the encore performance this season because to get back to the top 10 that quickly is just a testament to who he is as a player. Multiple slam quarterfinals are further for him as well. The big U.S. Open win over Sinner in five sets just to send a little message that you know, I mean, beats Alcaraz at the tour finals, beats Medvedev in Cincinnati. Like, it was a reminder that, hey, I can still hang with the big dogs. Is he a tier one guy for you, Ed, coming out of this season? Do you still have faith that he can win a slam in his career? Yeah, so if we're doing, um, th- there's no way I would consider, you sort of put it earlier, Would some would say Medvedev, and then we have a tier below him in this. That That is... That's, I think, too much credit to Medvedev, honestly, and perhaps even a slight, by extension, a slight to Zarev in a way. Um, there, there's just enough, and I think this is again about, um, it's about optics in a way to me too. Like you, you're just, you're just getting conditioned now to, you know, to recognize that Zverev is, Zverev is not an easy out any at any time anywhere. Um, you're seeing him collide, have those late round collisions at pretty much all slams. And if you kind of look at of where we are comparing the players in the top 10, everybody we're talking about right now, I think all you need to say about Zverev beyond, I think some good points you just made is he beats Carlos Alcaraz at the U S open. He beats, excuse me. He beats Yannick Sinner at the U S open, follows it up with Alcaraz at the ATP finals. I mean, you're talking about, you're talking about the two preeminent young players in the game. Zverev, he's still got it. Clearly he does. And he's, and I, you know, I, I, I think that I, I also think a lot of it is there is a, I mean, I know the conversation about Zverev that goes off the core. If we're talking about on the court and what players think of him as a, as an opponent, as a competitor, I think that is not discussed enough is like they, they recognize the game he has. They they recognize the ability. And there's a bit of that fear, I think, or apprehension that comes on the other side of the net. Now, yes, he may not go down swinging per se like an Alcarez, like we just said. I think that's a fair point. But he has the respect of, of his colleagues on tour from a tennis perspective. And I think that manifests itself in matches also. So I think the peaks that we still see from him, the age is still there. The serving, I think that was an excellent point about that. Um, I, I, I may go B plus just because we, we're talking about like number of titles and all that. He did not have anywhere near the level of, of Medvedev. Um, the highlights were there. I'll go B plus just on kind of the overall. 
but I think the I think the trend arrow is up for him for twenty uh, as we go to twenty four. I think that's all really well said. And my final point on Zvira of why I include him in tier one is even though some fans are disgusted by it, he's always playing matches on his terms. You will watch that grimy fourth set he's playing at a major where both guys, dare I say, pushing a little bit and the points get extended. And again, you hear the Zvira yell after every backhand out of a corner and then it's seven bounces or whatever it is before he blasts an ace by you. Like, it's always on his terms. It always is mm-hmm. mucked up because of Zverev. And I always say to be tier one, you got to be able to play on your terms. And even against Sinner, even against the Alcarazes, it feels like we're playing at Zverev's mucked up terms. And so I think that would be my final case for him to still be a tier one guy. I'm not going to lie. After that, that's where things end for me. And for the longest time, I kept Stefano Tsitsipas in tier one because he's proven he is that good on the clay courts. The past two years, he's gone from out, uh, he's been, excuse me, top 25 in break percentage amongst top 50 players on clay courts. For a guy whose backhand return is his biggest weakness, it's his biggest vulnerability. On clay courts, he's able to protect that backhand. He's still able to dominate with his serve, with his forehand, which is one of the five best combinations we have in tennis right now. And obviously, the hold percentage, he was number one this year amongst top 50 players, according to Tennis Abstract. And yet, Ed, I don't know if it's the consistent second-year struggles. I don't know what it is. I just, like, the fact that he was so inconsistent clouded the fact that Alcaraz gave him the business on clay this mm-hmm. year in a way that was a storyline until it wasn't because then he started dating Paula Bedosa and all these other things came up for Stefano Tsitsipas. He's really good at what he does. He's going to be one of the 10 best players in the world for a long time. Like he's no lower than tier two, but I just can't put him in tier one anymore. Where are you? Yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to side with you on that. The one can, the one condition I'll say is, you know, of all the players we talk about here, um, on a given match or a given tournament, the ceiling that he produces could be as high as anyone we're talking about. Now, it's it's he, he would have to be he'd have to be really on. He has done that before. Uh, you know, not all the way, of course, in a major. Um, but I, you know, I, I do. I would slide him underneath. Medvedev's Vera. Let's let's let's. I'll put that out there for sure. Mm-hmm. It's like you 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 want to say that unequivocally um, because of you know because of the one hander liabilities because of some disappointing results. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, have, have, do I feel like I've seen like the best of Stepanosis? But it feels like I have. I feel like I haven't seen it the the best of Medvedev's Vera yet in a way. So if, if I look at it from that perspective. Um, I think you kind of see that delineation between the two. I think another thing that goes against Steph as we're assessing his year, I think is this past year is anybody who starts off that well and really peters out, you just, you know, just from, I think a recency sort of elements, um, he had an awful U S open too. So like, if, if you look at it from that slide, like from where we were, um, in Australia, um, it, it's tough to not feel a little down on him. Um, if we're if we're going to bring the bills into this conversation, I didn't think Steph would be the guy to do it. But do we think of him being up two sets at RG last year in the fi- twenty two in the final as thirteen seconds? 
That's, so you know, maybe maybe that's the comp. That's a wonderful comparison because the Chiefs are a little Djokovic-y. There's no doubt about that mm. with Mahomes. That's good I, too. To to the Steph argument of it all, look, fewest wins for him in a full tour level season since 2018, his worst win percentage since 2018, his lowest break percentage since he played his first year of tour level matches in 2017. It's just the backhand became an issue for him this year in ways that he had sort of been minimizing over the course of the past few seasons. And then outside of the clay, there was just major regression. I mean, he wins Los Cabos in August, and then it's just a non-factor throughout the majority of the North American hardcourt swing. He's had progress on grass courts over the last two years, and yet he just hasn't dominated. It just hasn't clicked the way someone with his serve and his ability to dictate you think it would because, again, the backhand return has just been such an issue for him on that surface. Unlike Zverev, Medvedev, I just think to be tier one, you can't have a vulnerability like that. And I get Medvedev has that vulnerability in attacking his court positioning, Zverev, and just the nerves he displays at the end of big matches. But it's not so fundamental to like his tennis, their tennis identities, I guess. Well, I guess in some ways it is. But Tsitsipas's back end is just, it's easy pickings. And mm-hmm. again, I think he's going to be top 10. I think he's going to rack up like nine consecutive tour finals, which there's not a lot of guys in tennis history that have done. I just, I'm not sure he's going to win a slam anymore. So I've moved him down to tier two. You know, he has the same number of career titles as center this point. That's, he has that's remarkable. He has um, just ten overall. You would never think, and you go look at guys like I'm not going to bring in Carlos. I mean, Carlos is so young that that's almost surprising too. But like Zverev has Zverev and Medvedev are well over double that. Um, I think ten titles is kind of a if you want to look at one simple stat that just kind of sums up where Steph might be. It's just, can you get through a tournament essentially unscathed with that liability? So I think that's part of it too. Um, I would be surprised if 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 um, if a slam is in the cards. I think a lot of a lot of things that would have to go his way. One of those, you know, nice draws that really break sort of some carnage. Obviously, with him playing the way he can, um, you know, the classic player where it's like you know, man, like amazing to watch, but it's, I could see it being one of those just case studies where it just, it just doesn't come, come together. I mean, I'm I'm happy to have him prove me wrong. I have nothing against Steph, but um, it's just, I I feel like we have probably seen the, the apex of him and I'm just not sure it's enough in this era of players we've got right now. His best surface clay you know, again, two years ago, he makes the final at Roland Garros. He's up two sets to love, but you know, in those years since, Carlos Alcaraz has emerged as a force on the clay. Casper Ruud's made two French Open finals. Holger Runa looks really good on the surface moving forward. And Zverev's gotten healthy and obviously made a couple of runs at that event as well. It's just life gets a little bit tougher for Steph. And obviously you still have Djokovic. I'm, we'll see what Nadal comes back in. But it's just gotten tougher for Steph on that surface. And, yeah, that's why I've had him fall down to tier number two. All right, rest of the way, we're going to go rapid fire through these guys. And you tell me if you think there is ever a shot of them to make a tier one push or climb a tier. I'll tell you the tier I suppose I have them in. If you think there's still a chance for them to climb a tier moving forward, again, my definitions of tiers one, two, and three. Tier one, you're going to win a slam title. 
Tier 2, you're going to be ranked in that 4 through 10 spot, always competing for tour finals, always in the mix. Maybe a Masters 1000 thrown your way every once in a while. Again, in the mix, but missing that critical Tier 1 element. Tier 3 for me, you're going to be seated at slams. You're going to be a top 50 player consistently. You're going to be in our lives moving forward for much of the next half decade. Let's start with the guys at the top of the list. Andre Rublev's in Tier 2. He just won his first tour, uh, excuse me, Masters 1000 level event. Does he still have Tier 1 mobility to you, or is he who he is at this point? If Tier 1 is can you win a slam title, I would say 100% yes on Rublev. I, I, I wow. Still, I'm still, I still like it. Um, I think it's <laughs> – I'll tell you what, I've been burned by Andre Lubrov betting against him um, in the past. And maybe that's clouding a little bit of judgment here, but I, I you you watch, you just watch the pace. Um, right. And it's not as if like it's pace, but it's well-rounded. Um, I'm, I'm waiting for, I think one of the things we were talking about before this was, is there a level to go up in? And I think you look at, you know, he had four final four runner ups this past year. I think that alone says there is another level to get to because he's getting to that position uh, fairly consistently, but just something is just not there yet. Like he may not have, I guess the question is, does he have what is needed there? Or is he not just figured out how to actually do it? And I think that, though, know, that's, that's kind of a, existential sports question in a way, but I, I I'm sort of more confident on Rublev than maybe you are. Um, just because I, I just, I'm enamored a bit by, by really his career to this point. I mean, I know we're, I know he's not 22, 23 anymore, but I also, I'm going to give him a little more. I also am going to give him credit for what I've seen, but I, but I, I think if we're, I think we're looking at all these players who is 2024 maybe most pivotal for. I think you could possibly put Rublev in that mix. I'm scheduling you back for another conversation here in December if you're free. I know you're a busy man, so it's in pencil, not pen, because I do a podcast every year where I talk about who is the season most important for. Last year, mm. my list was Shapovalov, unfortunately, a DQ, Alex Demonauer pass, Karen Hatchinov pass, because you just saw refreshed ceilings from them in a way you hadn't seen in the past. That I'm putting Rublev on my list. I just want you to know you have inspired. Like that is such a good point to make because it's four straight tour finals. He's one of eight guys to rank top 20 in both hold and break percentage this year, and yet statistically, it's pretty similar to what we saw in years past. I mentioned the record this year: five top 10 wins. That's a career high for him, but it was five and nine, like compared to a four and five record last year. So he got more shots at the big dogs. It's not though they necessarily went better. That he had Zverev's number in a way he never had before in his career mm-hmm. was really encouraging. And then Zverev got him real good at the Tour Finals. And you're just worried, like, again, Andre Rublev has improved the backhand on the margins. He's improved his volleys on the margins. He's improved his movement on the margins. Fundamentally, he still is exactly who he was at 16, 17, 18 years old and bashing away from the baseline I just wonder if there's another adjustment to make. It's a fascinating question, one for its own podcast that we will save for another time. Your Rublev is my Hoobie Hercots. I just, Mm. I'm so fascinated by the peaks. And right now, I think a two-time Masters 1000 champion, a guy who, by the way, last two years finishes the season top 10. 
I actually think of all the guys I have in Tier 2, he's the one I still have with the most upward mobility, top five hold percentage, as talented with a racket in his hands in terms of feel and skill set and all these different things. And then physically, he's got the gift. 6'6", fluid, that Zverev, Medvedev model. You just can't fake the gifts that come with that benefit, uh, added length and athleticism. Solved his forehand conundrums down the home stretch in a way I hadn't seen before. He's the guy I think I, I'm most encouraged by to maybe be like put together a top five season where he just has really good slam results. Yep. I think he was the toughest player for me to assess in this group. Um, it part of me says, I think he, part of me has been impressed the whole, the whole ascendancy of his career. He's clearly in a, you know, if we take away, excuse these tiers, he's kind of just felt like he's in a, a, a an upper, an upper echelon tier of the game, of course. Um, in, in other ways, I feel like this is kind of exactly where Hercot should be. Um, I don't want to make the comparison to like a Thomas Burdich, for example. I think I think Hubi is a little more nimble than that, but I can I can also see just like maybe it's maybe it's not less about him and more about the opponents that somewhat invariably can figure him out by the end of maybe not necessarily over a match, but over a tournament. Um, certainly a player with just skill and the pace and the mindset really like, I love him with Craig Boyne. Like, I, I, I think that's fantastic though. That's it's a really healthy partnership. And I think they've done a lot in a pretty short time to, to elevate where he is. Um, I just, I do wonder if, you know, I wonder if it's a little plateau coming up. I don't know. I, I would love to see where where we go from here on the Hubie scale. Um, I love the man, but I'm a little more – I'm just more bullish on Rublev, I guess, between the two. That's fair. Hercot's a three-set king. My argument would end – we've seen him play five really good weeks of consecutive tennis. We've never seen a three-month run out of Hoopy mm-hmm. Hercots or a five-month run, a six-month run. And what if he does that? There's, well, again, a guy who I, to your point from earlier, I don't think we've seen him play his best tennis from start to finish in a season in the way we've seen Rublev be really consistent throughout the course of a calendar. And that's why I wonder if there's still some ranking upside to tap into for Hoopy. But a guy who would have been tier one in this list from 95% of people at the end of last season now – I didn't have him tier one, but I imagine a lot of people had Casper Root, a guy who did make another slam final this year in what was otherwise a pretty forgettable season for him. He's tier two for me. I always call him a mortal, Rafael Nadal. Like if Rafa wasn't blessed <laughs> with superpowers and leftiness, he would look like Casper. Um, and in response, Casper was given a full head of hair. Um, like he's, again, 11 in the world. I always say this is the context, but like everyone else in the rankings other than the 10 guys ahead of Casper would be like, yeah, I'll take a slam final. I'll take that season. Like I'd feel pretty good if I'm in my early 20s and that's my floor for a year. And yet I just, I'm not sure how high the ceiling is. Like I, I feel like he's a guy who will remain, like tier two just feels like an Andre Rublev, Casper Root category. Two guys who are always going to be in the mix, but I don't think I'd ever bet on to win the title. It's, um, I feel like if you can, find like overachieving 
the, the, the word overachieving and top 10 player doesn't really usually go hand in hand, but I feel like that's what it is for rude. Even though, I mean, it's three slam, three slam finals, right? I'm not, uh, it, it's, yeah. and we're doing across two surfaces here too. It's the serve to me, which is just the big, the big thing for Casper. You're, you're just not going to get enough easy points um, the forehand, I, I love the forehand. I, I, I love a lot about Casper's game, um, his approach. I, I think it's, you know, trying to, trying to sort of, you know, have Rafa as that lodestone in a way is, is a great thing. Um, and I think one of like the best, it just, there, I can't say enough good things about Rube, but I'm with you on tier two sounds right. Um, even for, it, it's really hard to say, that when you think about what he's already accomplished at 24, but I, I do think there's just, there's a little more upside for some of the other players we're talking about. Yeah, I think that's completely fair. All right. For this category, rapid fire. Does this player crack the top 15 again in their career, whether it's at the end of 2024 or in a subsequent season? If you're more interested by this player, you are more than welcome to give more than a sentence if you'd like. If not, you can just stick to a straight yes or no answer. Here's the list for you. Again, these are all next-gen guys born 96 to 99. There's a long list of them who have at least had a sniff of showing top 15 level throughout the courses of their career. So here we go. Alex Diemenauer. Top 15, you said? Yeah, top 15 at any other point in his career. Will he end a season like that? Uh, yes, I, I feel the David Ferrer vibes, but he's younger and he's got, I just very impressed all the way, like a total battler. So yes, he's like Sabalenka. He's the oldest 24 year old we have in the world, right? Like, let's yeah. remember he was born in 99. I couldn't agree with you more. Sabalenka is the same way where I, in your head, you're like, oh, she's 28, she's 29. It's like, no, she's actually 25. Like, yep. still, like there's still some, some tennis to be shed there. Demon Hour is one of the winners of 2023, one of the highest grades relative to expectations. Top five in hard court wins this year. His losses at the hard court majors were Djokovic Medvedev. It's just like, isn't that the mm. path for him moving forward as well, where you get close, but those are the guys who just have the ability to match his fitness and knock him out. <sighs> mm. I don't think he makes it to her finals ever. I think he ends at top 15 again in his career. Next guy, Karen Hatchinoff. Uh, yes, I'm, I'm still going to back my guy, Mark Knowles, who put it to me in, uh, after Hatchinoff's famous Paris masters win, where he, he put it to me, like, he's not the number one, but he's been my number one guy. He put it to me, like he was so invested in him at this time. I, I, this could be a thing where I'm kind of grasping for things of the past, but you know, Consistency is not there, which I think is part of the top. It's of course part of making the top fifteen. Um, I just think it's it's he's it's too juicy that game. It's too it's too overpowering at times, and he can go five sets. Like fitness is never going to be an issue too. So I think if we're talking to like hatching off top fifteen, it's can he make enough big impressions at the biggest events? And he does strike me as kind of a big match guy in a way. Uh, obviously no slam, of course, but um, I'm still high on Hatchinov, so yes. 
I agree with you. Had he not been injured, he probably takes that eighth spot mm. at the Tour Finals this year. And he's made the third round or further in 17 of his last 22 majors. Like, he doesn't lose to non-seeds at the majors. He puts himself in a position always and obviously has had some success of late. And again, I'm always ba- – I, I asked this question once – to Djokovic, and I got a fascinating response, and just like, how much, how beneficial is it to be six six on the ATP tour? How much of a of a benefit is it to those guys to have those weapons? And yet, the fluidity him, Medvedev, Zverev, Hercots have, it's just, it's this next generation of athletes that you know, again, even Izovich was stiff. Like these guys, they refer to in the past, couldn't move like this, even if they had the serves as well. I always say Chilich walked so all these guys could run. And uh, certainly mm-hmm. we see a generation of them now. Davidovich Fokina? Um, I want to say yes, but I'm not sure with him. Uh, yeah. I, so I think I'm I think I'm leaning more no. Um, keep in mind his record lifetime, 96 and 97. I don't think you'd ever <laughs> think of him as a under 500 player. <laughs> Um, there's only four, there's only four Matt 32 and 28 in 2023. I had written yeah. down, um, you know, you're always enamored by some of what he does. Love the dude run, can run for days, be Djokovic in a pretty great match. Um, I want to say yes, but I'm going to say no. I think just like a great dude, but not a top 15. I'm going to give you the counter. Why I'm a yes is because that record's atrocious, and he's still been a top 35 guy for two years now, which just speaks to the mm. highs are so high. And another guy's been in our life for a while. He's a 99er as well, 24 years old. And so like, can he find consistency? Again, him and Shapovalov are both on my list of most important who is 2024 for, um, and I want to get to Shap in a second, but these guys we can go just yes and no through because I know our yep. listeners will care, dare I say, a little bit less uh, or know a little bit less about them at this point. Ugo Umber. Uh Yes, if he can get to the top 20 the way he plays, he can get top 15. I like that answer. I'll go yes as well. Sarundalo, Francisco, not Juan Manuel. Yes, Uh one on grass uh, this year, Miami, he's killed it there, and he can play on clay, too. The racket talent's too ridiculous. I agree with you. I'm a yes there. Greek spore. I need to see more. I think you've got a lot more on him, but it feels like he just every week I see him, it's like it's a very tough out, and he's just become more part of like what I'm seeing in the game. Uh, I need to see a little more, though. He's one of those guys who's going to be really good at country clubs for just years to come. It's so smooth mm. and just his serve, the forehand, cannons, comfortable volleying. I don't think he's an elite athlete, though. I do think he's maximized everything. So I'm going to say no, but he's going to hang around for a while. Echeverry? I'll say no for now. I need to see like a tournament win somewhere. Sure. Uh, even, like a le- even like a lesser would be fine, but um, I'm going to say no for now. South America, February. That's the moment for Echeverry. Mm. I call him Discount Kasparud. Um, I think he's a good player. I don't see a top 15 for him. Bublik? Um, it's a quick no for me. I want him to, but I don't think so. No, just yeah. there's too many walkabouts. He is who he is. Eubanks? No, no. Love the guy, but no. Just the, I, the, one, the one-hander, no. Wimbledon quarterfinal wins Mallorca this year. Let's match that. You do something like that again this season, that's a win. I don't think top 15. Safulin? Uh Is he the new Karatsev? Um, somebody Better. really to watch. Somebody won. Somebody 
of all this list to watch early on in 2024 because if if this is a if this is a trend and not a isolated 2023 then there's definitely potential there and you talked about his junior credentials yeah no i i agree i i think the the tennis is there the serve is getting better i'm a fan does chorch get back I'll hold out. I will hold out hope and say yes. There's just too many. There's too much. The career's too good already. But it's all injury based. We'll see. That's fair. I'm gonna go no Popperin. I'm gonna say he's interested because the serve forehand are huge. Let's say yes. He might have the highest ceiling of anybody on the rapid fire list. That's he might. That's a good take. It, because there are times you watch him strike a ball and you go, mm, "That's how it's supposed to look." He would really have to, he'd really have to, you know, come through. But it's if I'm going to do something of a take, let's say yes on Popperin. Love that, Christian Green. Um, tough one, but I'll say no. I just, I, yeah, I'm just going to go no. Emil Rusevori. Um, he's David's discount Yannick Sinner. Discount Yannick Sinner. Yeah, that's tempting for that reason alone. Yeah. Um, the the Scandinavian, another Scandinavian king. Um, I'm gonna say no for now, but let's revisit them. Him, I think I'm highest on. My last two yeah. names for you: Denis Shapovalov, who I think is one of the like. If you guys want someone to write the twenty the piece for 2024 for Tennis.com. To not otherwise obstruct the already very well planned and laid out content, which everyone should go check out because it is must read for every tennis fan. If you need to go off that beaten path and someone to write the why Denis Shapovalov's a must watch player in 2024, I'm here for you, my friend. Yeah, again, I I, I want to say I'll say yes, I want to say yes, but again, I bring it back to that question: Who's coming out of the top 15? That's the mm-hmm. that's really where it's hard to make cases, but I mean, lefty, it has everything, has everything, but yeah. um, Let's, let's see what Dennis does in 24 like you. Yeah. And I think we'd both be a yes on Berrettini. It's just, is he healthy? Because right now he's not. Yep. feel like we haven't seen him in just forever, but yeah, I mean, the dude is, dude's got a lot of game to go still. Yeah. And so with that, again, the next gen tiers for me right now, just to recap tier one, I have Medvedev Zverev tier two, Tsitsipas, Rublev, Rude, Hercots, and Tommy Paul. Now you notice we didn't talk Americans today. We did a full state of the union podcast on them. So just scroll down in your mini break podcast feed to hear more. Tier three, I have Fritz, Shapovalov, Berrettini, Tiafo, Hachinov, Demonauer, Sarundalo, Davidovich, Fokina, Safulin, and Tom, uh, excuse me, and Riley Opelka, who obviously right now out with injury. But again, that ceiling from those first two months of last season, as I've been looking back on this year, I've been reminded of them. So that's where things stand. And that's our State of the Union for the current next-gen ATP players we have out on tour. Now, it was a pleasure to be joined by you, Ed. And again, it is always a pleasure to see the work you and the Tennis.com team are up to. Can you tell our listeners what we can expect over the next month? Thank you, man. Um, Big thing this month is 2023 in review, 2024 to come. Um, Player of the Year countdowns, those are in the books. ATP and WTA, uh, both live. Uh, Really good graphics on all this stuff, too, we've been doing. We're currently in the match of the year countdown. This will be the most, much more um, subjective compared to player of the year. 
Um, that is going to run from uh, started on Tuesday, runs till next Thursday. And every match that we write about for match of the year is airing that night on Tennis Channel in full. So uh, read about it and then you know, soak it all in on the replay there. And then we move after that um, to the burning questions of 2024. There's 10 of them. Um, we'll be counting those down and that pretty much brings us, you know, right to, uh, December 30th or 29th, which is like a United cup kickoff day. So, uh, all you can eat. $1 to win 17,750 on a Bills Lions Super Bowl. Do we do I, that? Look at that. I was just going to say, I was going to close with Bills Lions. Yeah. So uh, it's, it's one, again, one buck for 17,750. Oh I have spent $1 in way worse ways. I'm going on right now, uh, and I'll have that alongside my uh, my my Bill Super Bowl when it was at uh, 20 to 1 last mm. week. So now I'll, have even, I'll, I'll be more pot committed than that. I mean, that is just a pleasure. All I ask is I'll take a dollar of that 17750 if you don't mind. Just one for, again, laying out those odds for you. Love it. Love it. I'm going for it. Oh, I appreciate it, Ed. Again, don't be a stranger. Hopefully, we will have you back on the show soon and really appreciate you taking the time to chat because I asked for 45 minutes and he gave me far more than that. So thank you, Ed. All good, buddy. We'll do it again. Hope all of you enjoyed my conversation with Tennis.com and Tennis Channel Senior Editorial Manager Ed McGrogan. Again, you should be reading all things Tennis.com during the course of this offseason if you want to remain the most well-informed, best-educated tennis fan in the business, whether it's Ed, our dear friend David Kane, or any of their other talented writers. It's my favorite enterprise we have outside of Cracked Rackets in the tennis media industry. And again, really excited to have Ed on the show. Hopefully, we will be able to have him more frequently moving forward in the future as well. That said, again, State of the Union week rolls on. We've got another great episode for you all tomorrow. If you missed our breakdown of where things stand for the American men, American women, all you got to do is scroll down on your podcast feed. You'll also find our 2023 ATP and WTA award shows, which I was fortunate enough to get to do with our dear friends David Kane and Gil Gross. So a lot of great content here. We've kicked off our college tennis preview coverage over on the Great Shot podcast feed. Interviews available on the Cracked Interviews podcast feed as well. So be sure to go review, rate, share with your friends. A thank you, as always, to the efforts of our super producer, Daniel Westhoff, who, as always, has a <laughs> of an editing job to do day in, day out in making all of our content possible. With that said, for the fantastic Ed McGrogan, our super producer, Daniel Westhoff, our friends at Tennis Point, and from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break. We'll talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.